This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome to the Nevers Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and dissection of every episode of upcoming HBO series, The Nevers, from writer-director Joss Whedon. If you'd like to visit our website, you can find us at hbothenevers.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, at hbothenevers. If you have any ideas for the podcast, interview requests, Comments or questions, feel free to contact us at the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling particularly generous, consider joining us on Patreon. Benefits include the Nevers Podcast merchandise, enter into giveaways, personalised shout-outs, access to Patreon-only shows, currently Dollhouse Awakens, our revisit of every episode of Dollhouse, and so much more. Just search... The Nevers Podcast Patreon. You can also download and stream The Nevers Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review The Nevers Podcast. It doesn't just feed our egos, it also helps us move up the charts and get our podcast channel seen by more listeners. It just so happens, we actually have a review. This one is from SpoiledBrat254 who gave us 5 out of 5 on Apple Podcasts. They wrote, Greatness has been achieved. First, let me say, I've been a Joss Whedon fan forever. I think he's an awesome writer and has achieved so much with his work, making it on TV. I didn't know about The Nevers until my sister pointed me to this podcast, and after hearing and seeking the info out on Google, I'm super excited to watch. About the podcast, I think you guys have found a perfect balance. Your personalities really shine and keep me interested. I have subscribed, and I'm looking forward to the discussion when the show comes out. Thank you so much, Spoiled Brat 254 We'll try hard not to spoil you too much. By the way, you can now find The Nevers Podcast on Amazon. That's right, Amazon Podcast that has just launched has The Nevers Podcast as one of the very first podcasts up there. So go and subscribe to us on Amazon, and whatever your podcast app of choice is, and help us rise right to the cream of the crop. I am your co-host Tyg, and joining me today is Heather. Hello! We have a very special guest for you on this episode. We'll introduce them in a moment, but first, the news. We do have news this time, which is uh, which has been uh, something we haven't had for a long, long time because of the, you know, presumably the COVID shutdown. Um, filming has recommenced as of September 7th. The actors have been posting on social media about returning to work. Listeners can read all about it on uh, a new blog post on hbothenevers.com. Dennis O'Hare, who is playing uh, Dr. Edmund Haig, who was also an interview on the show, confirms that The Nevers is premiering next year in 2021. We don't know any more than that, whether it's going to be a spring or a fall release. Uh, We don't know what night or anything like that, but you know, Dennis probably knows what he's talking about. So we're super excited that it didn't get pushed back to 2022, which is what we were worried about. Yeah, that would have been painful. Yeah, absolutely. So let's introduce our guest, uh, Stephen Beal. Uh, Stephen Beal is a writer and editor based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. 
He was a longtime freelance contributor to How Magazine, which I am intimately familiar with as a designer, focusing primarily on software applications for graphic designers. Uh, he, he's former news and reviews editor of Macworld, which I'm also familiar with. Um, and he's the founder and editor of the Steampunk Explorer, which is why he's here with us today. One of the top online destinations for steampunk enthusiasts. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Stephen's website, the Steampunk, Steampunk Explorer, is an online magazine with a resource directory for steampunk enthusiasts and creators. It's a great source of information on steampunk events retail outlets, museums, eateries, galleries, etc., and also provides a calendar of events in North America and the UK. When did you launch your site, Stephen? In uh, 2018. And how's that been going? Has, that been, has it been super popular? I've been very pleased with the results. Um, the, uh, the COVID um, outbreak has had a bit of an impact. Uh, previously, I did a lot of coverage of events. Uh, I would do previews of steampunk conventions and steampunk festivals, and I would write reports, photo galleries and things like that from steampunk events. And obviously, like so many other events, most of them have been canceled. Virtually all of right. them have been canceled. Right. So now what is, what's happening is a lot of people are putting on virtual events. And so I have a calendar of virtual events in the steampunk world. And I also have a news column I run every week um, where... I just kind of round up all the things that are happening in the steampunk world and kind of package them conveniently in a fairly quick read. Uh, that goes out every week and that has a lot of readers. So uh, that's my main, what I'm mainly doing now on this site is, is keeping up with the virtual events and uh, and putting out this weekly uh, news update, news roundup. Is it all you? Is the site you? Almost all me, yes. Uh, I've had a few contributors uh, over the years. Uh, some photographers have allowed me to use their work. A, f a couple of writers, uh, Professor Elemental, who is a well-known chap hop artist in steampunk, has contributed a couple <laughs> of commentaries, which were uh, illuminating and quite popular. Uh, but it's it's ninety five percent me. So while the site's primary uh, focus is steampunk, do you cover any other stuff like um, science fiction, fantasy? I know there's a bleed over where things you're not sure. Or it's, yeah. a, you know, steampunk is not, and we'll get into this during the discussion, that steampunk is not, you know, a rigid set of principles. So, Yeah, I, I, I definitely cast a wide net. So I would say that steampunk is the bullseye, but then outside of the bullseye, you've got these concentric circles. And depending sure. on how far those concentric circles are from the bullseye, I'm inclined to cover them. I'll cover interesting things about Victorian history. I'll cover diesel punk. Um, if it's interesting to my readers, if I think a steampunk fan would be interested in the news, I'm inclined to write about it. So what made you a steampunk fan? Like, you know, Tyg's a steampunk nut. He wants mecha everything. So when when did it start for you? Well, it's interesting. I, I've been a science fiction fan since I was a kid. And I remember when I was, uh, I'm giving away my age, but I remember watching the Wild Wild West, the original TV series uh, back in the 60s. And I was a fan of that, which it was sort of like you were enjoying steampunk without knowing it was steampunk because steampunk hadn't been invented yet. Um, but I first heard of steampunk, and actually a lot of people first heard of steampunk in uh, 2008, the New York Times ran a story in their style section about steampunk. 
And it's interesting because at that point, steampunk had been a literary genre, a genre of science fiction. Uh, the term was coined in the 90s, I believe, by K.W. Jeter. Um, but at the, when the New York Times ran this story, it had become a style, an aesthetic. And, and that got me fascinated. Uh, that's how, that's how I first heard about it. And then a few years later, um, I, I bought a digital camera and I was looking for places to take pictures, interesting pictures in the Bay Area. And there's a, a big, uh, a big festival not happening anymore, unfortunately, uh, called Maker Fair, which was sort of a big showcase for do it yourself projects. And they had a steampunk section. So imagine a big, sort of like a cross between a county fair and Burning Man and a science fair in a big uh, uh, a fairgrounds, like a county fairgrounds type of place. And you're wandering <laughs> around and you're looking up and all of a sudden I'm walking into this area and I see these strange characters dressed up as these Victorian characters carrying zombie killing weapons. And, um, and weird, strange vehicles and, and accessories and things like that. And that was the steampunk section. And I had heard of steampunk, but I had never kind of experienced, experienced it live. So that was, uh, that was my real introduction to steampunk. And then I, I would go back to Maker Fair every year. And then I started going to a steampunk convention in the Bay Area. And just over time, I, I decided at some point that I wanted to start my own publication. And I said, oh, steampunk's a pretty cool thing to cover as, a, as, a, as an editor. So that's how it started. Cool. Sounds like a hell of a festival, which I could have visited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sadly, it's, it's, uh, kind of, it's kind of defunct in a way. They, they revived the company that put it on went bankrupt, and then they got resuscitated. But the real big maker fairs, there were big ones in New York and San Francisco, are probably not going to happen anymore, sadly. Uh, I know a lot of cons have taken it on the chin from this. Like they depend yeah. on their their events going like clockwork to keep revenue flowing. So yeah, yeah. But in normal times before the the pandemic, there was a steampunk convention happening somewhere in the world, or not maybe maybe not a convention, but a convention or a festival or some kind of get together, at least once a weekend year round, someplace in the world. And you have to figure the two most covid safe subgenres are definitely steampunk and cyber goth there's there's gas masks <laughs> everywhere in those yeah, situations that, unfortunately that doesn't help and uh practically uh it started happening in march uh there were a couple of uh fairly sizable steampunk conventions coming up they were both canceled you know just a week before they were supposed to start and that began Ugh. the domino effect and uh, one by one, they all fell by the wayside. And now even one scheduled for, there's a big one in Tucson that happens in March and they've canceled for 2021. They won't be happening until wow. 2022. So it's even extended into next year. I mean, yeah, I know, I know some of the cons that I go to are already starting to cancel stuff in March and April of next year. Because they just don't know if there's going to be a vaccine. And, you know, a year of planning goes into each one of those. And, you know, so I feel for I feel for the people behind those because it's so much hard work. And then yeah. especially last year having to cancel like a month or so before in a lot of cases. And those huge uh, like refunds and ticket cancellation yeah. and everything. So that must have really messed up a lot of people's sort of 
budget planning and stuff. It gets very complicated because they have hotel contracts mm. and, and, and things like that. Um, there are actually a couple of conventions coming up that are probably going to be canceled, but they can't tell people that they're canceled because of their hotel contracts. Yes. That's why um, Dragon Con yes. had to wait for so long to cancel. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about it, a convention is the ideal spreader event, so to speak. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, so, even at the best of times, going to a con yeah. is risky business. I would yeah. come back from Dragon Con when I lived on the East Coast every year with the worst con crowd I've ever had in my life. So yeah. uh, people just packed and, and Dragon Con, you know, tens of thousands of people at some point, you know, in you know, hotel lobbies and stuff like that. It's absolutely a super spreader event. Sad, but better safe than sorry. Right. This episode of the Nevers Podcast is sponsored by Dead Good Teas, aficionados of the sci-fi and horror genre and creators of premium heavyweight t-shirts and hoodies that are built to last. Dead Good Teas ships worldwide. So whether you're braving the Arctic winds of the Yukon or strolling the beaches of beautiful Thailand, Dead Good Teas has you covered. Thank you to Dead Good Teas for supporting quality Quality podcasting. Start shopping today at deadgoodtees.co.uk. And don't forget, you can follow them online at Dead Good Tees. So, let's dive into the discussion for the episode. A simple question with an incredibly complex answer. What is steampunk? Yeah, that's where we're going. Okay. <laughs> First, a quick summary of the Nevers for anyone who may not be familiar with it. The Nevers is a sci-fi series set in Victorian London about a gang of women with special abilities, relentless enemies, and a mission that might very well change the world. There are many definitions of steampunk. When you think of steampunk, images of gears and gauges, corsets, top hats, and goggles probably come to mind. But what is steampunk, and what is the origin of that term? As our special guest mentioned earlier, the term originated when author Kevin Jeter, or K.W. Jeter, as most would know him, not to be confused with his slightly angry brother Vegeta from Dragon Ball, <laughs> along with Tim Powers and James P. Blaylock, are credited with originating the genre, although the label has been applied retroactively to many earlier works. The three students were working together at Cal State Fullerton in Orange County, California, where they befriended Philip K. Dick. I love him. Jeter conceived of the term as a way of distinguishing him and fellow tetro tech sci-fi writers from cyberpunks. The stories from Jeter, Powers, and Blaylock, along with some others, were considered the first wave of steampunk literature. The second wave featured more female authors, um, who most prominent was Sherry Priest and Gail Carriger. Priest's Bone Shaker, 2009, is considered a major recent work in the genre, as are Carragher's Parasol Protectorate novels. Since then, Steve Punk has taken on a life of its own. It's a visual style and even a philosophy. It's about mixing the old and the new, fusing the usability of modern technology with the design aesthetic and philosophy of the Victorian age. Today, the subculture is celebrated with fashion, costumes, music, festivals, art projects, and many many conventions. <laughs> Cosplay is a huge part of steampunk culture. It's a fairly large community of people who make amazing steampunk accessories, jewellery and clothing, plus pretty much if you can think of an item, they can steampunk it. It's awesome. Which they can sell through Etsy and of course at steampunk events. Many others have adopted steampunk cosplay as just a DIY hobby, which is 
pretty freaking awesome. So, Stephen, talk to us. We've gone through all the, you know, what is. But what's your definition of steampunk? That's why you're here to talk to us about your expertise. Yeah, well, I have a, a fairly expansive view of it. I, I think it's one point that needs to be made is there's not like some uh, council of steampunk elders that <laughs> that determines what is or is not steampunk. It's a very grassroots uh, phenomenon, a grassroots community, and, and everybody has their own definition. Um, there's a uh, and it's kind of like science fiction. You know, if you think about it, it's really hard to define science fiction. It's not fiction about science. It's not even necessarily fiction about the future, but you kind of know it when you see it. And steamp- that's, steampunk is like that, but it's also somewhat in the eye of the beholder. Uh, there's an academic, uh, an English professor in Canada named Mike Prashan, who... Um, uh, actually wrote his PhD PhD dissertation on trying to define steampunk. Like, what is steampunk? It was 300 pages long. Um, now <laughs> and he boiled I want to read it. Let me just get that. I'm like, ooh, I want to read that. <laughs> yeah, now he boiled that down to a blog post, and he boiled that blog post down to one sentence, and I will read you the sentence. So this is, and he calls it not so much a genre, but a an aesthetic. And so he said, steampunk is an aesthetic that mixes three features, techno-fantasy, hyper-vintage, and retro-futurism. Hmm. Now, that raises the question, well, what do you mean by techno-fantasy, hyper-vintage, and retro-futurism? <laughs> right, which is why, Which is why it takes 300 pages to really, you know, you know give it justice. <laughs> but uh, that I think that's a pretty good definition. Other people have other definitions. I, I think it's helpful to maybe give a little history. As you mentioned, there were these three writers in Orange County who, who kind of got it started. And back then, it, it was it was science fiction set in the Victorian era. But since then, it has evolved and changed so much, that does not really fit anymore. Um, and I I also would say it's it's probably not too helpful to get really hung up on the word steampunk uh you know steampunk was when kw jeter came up with the name he wasn't really intending to give it a formal label it was almost like an off-the-cuff remark in a letter and at the time cyberpunk was a real big subgenre of science fiction so it's sort of like watergate you know after watergate every scandal became a gate um so uh you know, he would say, well, steam power was the primary energy source in the Victorian era. So instead of calling it cyberpunk, we'll call it steampunk. But it doesn't, but steampunk does not necessarily have to involve steam. And the punk, you know, in cyberpunk, the punks were outcasts and outlaws. Steampunk does not necessarily have to involve punks, although some people would say it does. And that's a major source of discussion in the field. Um, but uh, uh, like I said, you kind of know it when you see it. And uh, if you re- read some steampunk books, you you go to a steampunk convention. Sooner or later, you'll kind of have a sense and in, in, kind of an, uh, a sense in your bones of what steampunk is. So breaking off from that, I have a question um, and we'll get to books later. But how does um, I know these writers talk about how they, you know, labeled the genre and kind of vin- uh, invented it for modern times. How does um philosophically books like by hg wells that were like 
written during the Victorian era, but certainly have kind of that aesthetic going with with a mechanized kind of sci-fi way back before it was written um, nowadays, if you will. Well, the, the, the works of H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and, the, and Mary Shelley, they're the most prominent, you know, old time, you know, 19th century writers who, uh, you know, are associated with the genre. They could be fairly be described as precursors or maybe inspirations but a lot of people would say they're not steampunk because one of the elements of steampunk is it's told from the it's told from our perspective of the 20th or 21st century. And so um, and that's kind of a, you know, our, our cultural attitudes are a lot different now. You know, we have a much you know, we, we're much more aware of how the technology evolved in the future. And a lot of steampunk kind of projects current technology into the past. You know, like if you were to. If you were to reimagine a 19th century information age, what would it look like? Which is the premise of uh, the Difference Engine by uh, William Gibson and and, uh, right. and Bruce Sterling. So that's that's a big part of it. It's just that it's 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 looking at it's maybe set in the Victorian era, although not all of it is, and uh, or or the 19th century because it doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with Victorian England, um, but it's from our current perspective our, our contemporary perspective uh which we hope is more enlightened than it was back then uh, <laughs> so uh that's i don't uh, know these days is really testing it yeah well yeah <laughs> uh but that's um that's why a lot of people would say that you know jules verne and hg wells are not steampunk um, it kind of feels like hg wells and shelley in that that era those writers were very much looking into the future and thinking of what's where their world could go, whereas steampunk is more about being in the future, looking back at where you wish the world had gone. It's like kind of the the middle point between the two is right. the world where steampunk lives. Yeah, no, I was I was talking about Mike Pershon before, and he he uh, had an interesting take on retrofuturism, which is what we're talking about. That's one of the elements of his definition, and he he's he, he put it this way: steampunk retrofuturism is arguably more than just how the past imagined the future. Rather, it is the way the present imagines the past, seeing the future. That's some Inception stuff, right there, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there a central philosophy? Um, that people would kind of espouse about steampunk? Well, again, that's all over the map. Uh, I mean, some people do see a philosophy in the sense of uh, being kind of a reaction against consumer culture and kind of the throwaway culture and doing things yourself, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of a DIY aesthetic. But and, and there was a time when some people saw it actually as a counterculture. I don't think that's really so much happening anymore. Um, I think for a lot of people, and certainly for me, it's really a pastime. It's a hobby. It's a, it's it's fun. Uh, you know, you go to a steampunk convention. You might have some serious discussions about philosophy and aesthetics and history, but you're there to have fun, and they're a blast. Uh, if you if you really want to get hooked on steampunk, go to a festival or go to a convention. Um, so, so uh, again, there are all kinds of different viewpoints about steampunk, all kinds of different opinions. Uh, some people would say there is a philosophy, uh, but you don't necessarily have to adhere to any particular philosophy to be into the uh, into the culture. All right. Pretty cool. So let's move on to steampunk in pop culture. Um, steampunk in the Nevers, obviously, we only have one image 
that gives away that there might be some steampunk elements to it. Now we've had uh, a writer that will uh, remain nameless that has referenced that there's a steampunk element in uh, on the pilot. Um, and Dennis, uh, Dennis O'Hare, O'Hare certainly kind of uh, laid the groundwork that there would, there would be steampunk elements, but all we have is a picture of this car. Do you have, do you have this picture up? Steven, have I've you seen, seen it. this picture? I've seen it. It looks cool. It, it does look cool, and yeah. but it it doesn't look like a car you would have seen. And you know, I don't even they did. Well, I guess they did towards the late. The Victorian era was vast, so were were cars. I guess Model A's came out in the early 1900s, so cars would have been a thing, maybe. Very much like the discussion we had with Ruth Goodman about elevators, how they were not kind of they weren't standard, but they existed. I think. Cars are going to be very much in a similar, like, you may, people will know that what cars are, but they're not going to be readily available. Whereas this thing looks like it's very much a custom build that some probably penance has made for the teams. It's going to be quite fun to see how they work that out. Yeah. Now, I don't, you're obviously more familiar with the program than I am, but, uh, you know, there are all kinds of, any, with any kind of creative endeavor, there's questions about creative license and, sure. um, and in, one of the things about steampunk is that often steampunk is set in an alternate 19th century where you don't really have to be historically accurate. And um, so uh, depending on whether the goal with, with the Nevers is to make it feel like it was really set in the real Victorian era or take some liberties and maybe put it more in an alternate world. Obviously there were not women with superpowers back then, or maybe there were, right. we didn't know about right. them. Uh, so uh, uh, that, that that's a question I would have is to what extent are they going to take that creative license or set it kind of in an alternate 19th century. Historically, Joss's way is to stick very much to, now, obviously, Firefly's set in the future, but there are no monsters, there are no creatures. It's just people, right? It's And it, it envisions a world where Chinese and American cultures have kind of blended together for hundreds of years. Buffy was normal, set at a high school and then at a college later. And there were monsters, but they impeded on uh, every day-to-day kind of things for the Slayer. And it was supposed to be a big secret that this was going on. Same with Angel. Uh, same with Dollhouse. So my guess is, and especially at some of the dailies that we've seen, pictures of the costumes and stuff like that, that they will stick very close to Victorian kind of sensibilities and um, and um, authentic kind of dress, makeup, hair. I mean, you've seen people in costume that look like they're out of, you know, one of the design books from the era. Mm. Um, so we're not even sure how much, you know, obviously this car exists. So the steampunk stuff is in there. We just don't know. We, we don't think it's going to be set in an an alternative universe. We think that it's going to be, you know, the universe with this stuff kind of being surprising and being hidden. Well, I think that we're all, we are all looking greatly forward to it. I know that a lot of steampunk fans are really excited about the prospect of the show and whether or not you call it steampunk or it has steampunk elements, it's science fiction. It's Joss Whedon, and it's set in the 19th century. Our people are going to watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if they don't literally apply the label, just the fact that we've got uh, Dr. Edmund Haig, who we're getting very big Frankenstein vibes off of, and Penn and Adair, who's very much a kind of 
Victorian Iron Man. So, yeah, Penance Adair is one of the characters in the show, and the byline is she's going to be kind of the inventor type. She's going to be the Q, if you will, you know, in the James Bond universe. There's always one, usually, in these shows that depend on, you know, the MacGuffins of the technology. So, you know, in um, Dollhouse, it was Topher and Bennett Halverson, and in this, it's Penance. So what will she be doing? Retrofitting characters with mechanical body parts, maybe creating weapons, which I think is going to be huge that she'll, she'll be creating gadgets, you know? Mm. Um, how do you like seeing these kind of things like steampunk incorporated into film and TV shows? Do you like it to be super deep? Do you like it? Like, what would your ideal be if, if you were advising? Well, I'm a science fiction fan. So, I mean, I'll, I'll watch stuff that has nothing to do with steampunk, and, and I'll enjoy it. Uh, but then when you see the steampunk, you go, that's cool. And, and one example I'll give you, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, certainly was not steampunk, but there was a part of it was set on a pirate ship. And that pirate ship was totally steampunk. Oh, yeah. The apparel that the crew wore, the decor, the, the interior design, totally steampunk. And so it sort of seeped into popular culture, even though people might not recognize it as steampunk. Right. And, and when I see that, I go, okay, that's really cool. That's steampunk. But like I said, it's set in the 19th century. It's science fiction. It is Joss Whedon. We're going to enjoy it on that basis. <laughs> and if there's any pure steampunk stuff in there, you know, the, the gadgets or the, the, the costuming or whatever it might be, all the better. Yeah. I mean, and we know from some previous leaks and from a theory that I had that seems to have kind of slightly taken on a life of its own, we, the, the distinct suspicion that Amalia True, the main character, is going to be doing something fancy with an umbrella. Like there's, there's, there's been hints that she has an umbrella that is her right. constant companion that may be a little bit more than just a simple umbrella. Whoa. And I just, I can't wait to see a world created by Joss where the main character wields some kind of insane, super-powered steampunk umbrella that, that just, like, things fold out of it. and That is very steampunk. And actually, at many steampunk conventions and festivals, there are there is an activity known as parasol dueling. <laughs> and so... Uh, so that is definitely a, a part of steampunk culture, and I would be really pleased to see that kind of element in the series. I feel like if from the art that they debuted when they first announced it, it was like a crossover between, because there were cogs, but the picture was very prim and proper, a back silhouette of a person with a hat. And the first thing I thought was, geez, it's Mary Poppins meets steampunk, right? Meets Joss <laughs> Whedon. Yeah. And this is going to be crazy. So ready for this. So uh, Matt and Ty both wrote um, steampunk uh, blogs uh, where they talk through their theories and what they think steampunk is. You can go to HBO, theneverstop.com to uh, read those. We touched briefly on it earlier, but let's kind of drill into it now. There seems to be two main kind of big brains in the show we have penance adair who is very much working for the touched and she's you know amalia's best friend described as like um heretically progressive like she's clearly a a real kind of forward-thinking lady then we have uh dennis o'hare's character dr edmund haig 
who seems to have some real Dr. Frankenstein vibes. We've heard Jack talk the of a Yes, we've heard talk of like a giant two-story lab with like gadgets and tables and bubbling flasks and things. So how do you think they're going to handle the kind of science fiction versus science fact, sort of technology versus biology versus steampunk versus the limitations of the era? Like, how do you, th- like, would you, is that some, a kind of a area you'd like them to explore? Do you think there's many stories to be had in that region? Well, personally, I'd, li- I'd like to be surprised. Uh, I'll just see what he, what he comes up with. And, um, you know, creative genius is all about doing things you don't expect. Like I said, it's the, the setting, the era, the, the, the creative talent behind it. That all makes it very promising. And, and I, I am a big Joss Whedon fan. I love Firefly, Buffy, Angel, Dollhouse, especially Firefly. That was, uh, that's yeah. one of my all-time favorite series. And, and, the, and the movie, the Serenity. Um, so if he, can, if he can bring that kind of vibe to a story such as The Nevers, I'll be very happy and we'll all be very happy. Now, one thing I'll say, there's sort of been a holy grail in steampunk. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's not as popular as it could be. Part of it is that when you say steampunk to people, it's like a cool term. I mean, it's a really catchy term. But like I said, a guy wrote a 300 page dissertation on what, you know, trying to define what it means. <laughs> it's, it's kind of tough for people to get their heads around and it's tough to explain to people. And uh, Sherry Priest, one of the you know top steampunk authors, made this point: is that what's missing in steampunk is sort of a touchstone, where you can point something you can point to and say, you know, you you want to know what steampunk is? That's steampunk, and and sort of and and if, if the Nevers can be that, it would be great. If someone if if it's if, if it's close enough to steampunk, or has enough steampunk elements that people can say when someone asks, what is steampunk? You could say it's like the Nevers, or or it's like this part of the Nevers, or this aspect of the Nevers. Um, for older folks, people of my generation, I can say, remember the Wild Wild West? That's steampunk. I loved that show, right? But that's lost on a lot of people. I watched that show religiously when I was a kid. Yeah. So uh, now, now we had hopes for Mortal Engines. So Mortal Engines uh. was a movie based on based on a on a steampunk novel. They kind of took a lot of the steampunk out of the movie, and obviously it was a flop. You know, we had high hopes yeah. for it, and we thought, okay, this is the movie that's going to put steampunk on the map, and it flopped. So uh, it was a big disappointment. Um, although I will say that the, even the critics who didn't like the movie, they liked the aesthetic. So they actually liked the steampunk part of it. They didn't like the story. Now, Carnival Row is another show that, um, and I think that's that's more successful. It kind of got mixed reviews, but I I would argue it's more successful. Uh, that's that's something that that people have pointed to, and and it might yeah. be that uh, a genre like Steve- it's got a lot of high fantasy in it, though. Yeah, there's a lot of high fantasy in it as well. But very much a steampunk aesthetic, and and yeah. and, and, and you might make a case that maybe steampunk is better suited for. Uh, a series, you know, like a cable type series or a st- streaming series as opposed to a one-off movie. So, um, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, but there are, is that, that's one reason why people have a lot of hopes for the Nevers and maybe we're putting too much weight on that. You know, it might be a little bit of a heavy lift, a heavy lift, uh, for it to be carrying a whole genre like that. 
and I don't, I wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, you, you want, you want Joss to kind of take it where he thinks it should go. But a lot of people have that kind of hope for it, for that series or maybe other series that might be in the works. One thing can definitely be said for Joss is he, he tends to just take shows where he wants them to go. So I, I don't think he will labor too much under the weight of the combined expectations of yeah, a large part I would of not expect that. The, the, the community. But e- even if it's close, yeah. even if it's close. Th- this actually brings us on quite excellently to our next question, which is how would we like to see steampunk incorporated into the Nevers? Like where, what avenue would we like it to be added? I think it does seem like it's we're slightly repeating ourselves, but it does seem like penance is going to be the steampunk character. I don't think necessarily the show will have a huge amount of steampunk in it because it does seem to be quite heavily Victoriana based, more like the social moral morays of the time. But I have a distinct suspicion the character of penance is going to be 100% steampunk. There's going to be gadgets, giant kind of like the uh, power loader from Alien, but all made out of brass and cogs. <laughs> yeah. She's going to be our steampunk lady, yeah. and I, I'm, I'm, I can't wait for that. It's all about the aesthetic, and I guess the other thing I would say is, as I said before, steampunk is looking at the you know 19th century or early 20th century through a contemporary lens, and you can't help but do that if you're going to be making a 21st century production. You're going to be doing it from you know it's going to appeal to the sensibilities of 21st century viewers. And so you really can't get away from that. Uh, you're going to probably see, I, you know, just based on what I've seen of the cast, you're going to probably see better representation of people of color than you might have seen in something produced back at that time. Strong women characters. And, and that's very steampunk, you know, kind of uh, reimagining the past from a uh, 21st century perspective. Why do you think Joss has potentially chosen to incorporate steampunk into the Nevers? Is it something that's kind of necessary for dealing with the era? Or do you think he just wants to have more toys in his toy box to play with? You know, as the show gets closer to uh, to, to uh, uh, being ready, to you know, closer to release, I'm sure he'll be, you know, there will be interviews. He'll get to talk about it more. And, and at that point, you know, at least we hope that people ask the question and then maybe we can get some insights. If, if they don't, we will. We will spam <laughs> him with letters talking about steampunk until he replies to one of them yeah now i i guess one point i should make is that um because it's such a hard word to define you're not going to the people who do the publicity and the marketing for entertainment uh, properties are probably not going to use steampunk as a label uh because it, no. it, it just doesn't work you know for you know some you know probably the, the majority of the, of the population probably does not know what steampunk is and so now what you will see is the media, which tends to be more sophisticated about steampunk, more knowledgeable about steampunk, you will see that term come up sometimes even when the, it doesn't really apply. So, um, uh, so, so you, you'll, you'll see steampunk mentioned in the coverage of it, but I would not expect to see that in the publicity surrounding no. the show. No. And HBO never, never labels its properties like that. Yeah. It never called Game of Thrones fantasy. You know, it never, his dark materials, which we'll talk about, has never been called steampunk. I mean, you know, even though there's a heavy, heavy element in there. 
Yeah, le- less so in the HBO than in the in the HBO version than in the Golden Compass, the the, the original yeah. movie. And I would argue actually that the series is better than the Golden Compass, far better than the Golden Compass. Worlds um, better. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there are steampunk elements there, but I don't know if I would even call it a part of the steampunk genre. Again, steampunk adjacent, as Heather has said. Right. Well, they got away from the Victorian and went in, you know, Art Deco, more Art Nouveau kind of direction. But that kind of retro, what you call retro futurist thing is there. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. They got the airships. Lots of blimps and stuff. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. got the airships. <laughs> you can't spell steampunk without airship. So, so speaking of popular media, um, we can run down a few of the books that are are um, kind of, as you put it, touchstones for the steam the steampunk um, movement. Uh, the first being Bone Shaker, and I'm going to admit to have not read any of these, but the Difference Engine. Um, Bone Shaker, 2009 by Sherry Priest, is considered a major work in the genre. And this is interesting to me. However, Priest is no longer active in the genre. Is that correct? Yeah, well, let me, I'll give you a little more background on that. Now, she, Bone Shaker was the first in a series she called The Clockwork Century. And, uh, and it was very successful, but apparently, from what she's written, less so with the later novels. And, and, you know, one thing that writers have to deal with, this is their living. This is their profession. They're, this is how they, they, they pay their mortgage or pay their rent. And so, um, it, the latter novels were not selling as well. And so she moved on to, you know, I think she's writing horror now. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's happening a lot. You know, Gail Carragher wrote the Parasol Protectorate novels, and then she followed up with the Custard, um, oh, the Custard something or other, um, uh, Custard Protocol, Custard Protocol, I think. At any rate, uh, it was set in the same universe. So she has this shared universe called the Parasolverse. And so she wrote a bunch of, of uh, you know, novels and stories in this Parasolverse, but she just wrapped up the last one. And so uh, I'm not sure what her plans are. She's kind of branched off into other subgenres of science fiction. And so uh, she's a very much a beloved figure in the steampunk community. And she's a popular speaker at conventions. She's got a big following that overlaps with steampunk. But I'm not really sure where she's going to be going because she's got to make a living. And she's uh, she's going where the sure. market is. And so um, that's happening with a lot of writers. Well, let's hope that the Nevers has enough of the genre markers in it that it'll kind of fix that for the people that are writing. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's what happens. You know, you, Game of Thrones came out and, yeah. you know, he always, Martin always sold a lot of books. Don't get me wrong for Game of Thrones. But I'm sure the TV show just sent, A, all of his books flying out the window oh, yeah. on the bestsellers list. And stuff that's, you know game game of thrones adjacent yeah so there, and there are other types of media where steampunk is more strength and there are and i don't want to give the impression that no one is re- professionally writing steampunk there are a lot of self-published authors in steampunk and there are still some publishing houses you know small independents and the bigger ones that are putting out steampunk works just not as much as they used to and not necessarily right. marketing them as steampunk but there are some graphic novels. There's a lot of activity with graphic novels. A lot of activity with games. Uh, Steampunk is a very popular aesthetic for games. 
Um, we'll be touching on that in a yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, and that makes that makes more sense because of the aesthetic of it. Mm. Um, Ty, I'm going to let you talk about Difference Engine because <laughs> I know you're crazy about this book. Yeah, it is. It is one of my favorites. It's from 1990, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. We mentioned it earlier, and actually, I, I talk about it more in my blog post. Uh, it's an alternate history novel. It's widely regarded as one of the books that helped to establish many of the genre conventions which people today categorize as steampunk. It posits a Victorian era Britain in which great technological and social change has occurred after entrepreneurial inventor Charles Babbage succeeded in his ambition to build a mechanical computer, actually his analytical engine rather than a difference engine. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those books that just like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I read it and I was like, I have to know more of this. I have to read every book of this genre that I can lay my hands on. And like, I mean, you were saying earlier that your kind of entryway into the world was Wild Wild West. For me, it was a difference engine. I just kind of I really loved the idea of like these giant clanking machines powered, like, you know, controlled with punch cards. Yeah, kind of the way that it took what for then was incredibly modern technology and put this old school twist on it. You know, I have a confession. I have read pretty much everything that William Gibson has written except for the difference engine. No way! <laughs> it, is, it is on my list, believe me. There, but yeah, there are a few other books that sort of fit the theme. One you mentioned earlier about graphic novels being a big entryway for steampunk. Uh, Girl Genius by Phil and Kaja Folio. Brilliant, brilliant book. Yeah. It's absolutely worth uh, Adventures of Romance Mad Scientist. Great book. There's, uh, of course, we, can, we mentioned it earlier. His Dark Materials, which has uh, you know, now been reimagined as a series for HBO, and we saw a while back Sigh as a fairly terrible t- movie. The books was... were brilliant, though. The trilogy was yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I was going to say one one graphic novel. Uh, there are a couple of other graphic novels that are notable. One, of course, is The League of Extraordinary uh, Gentlemen, Alan oh. Moore. Uh, now yeah. that the movie of yes. that, you know, was. You know, kind of got panned, and he didn't like the movie. But the the, the series is great, the comic, the graphic novel series. And there's also a series uh, called uh, Lady Mechanica uh, by Joe Benitos that's quite popular. Uh, so again, uh, because of the aesthetic, you know, the steampunk really lends itself to visual representations. So there's a lot of activity. Uh, well, I'll tell you one of my favorite, and you just gotta love the name. It's it's not it's a, it's an old story, but the Five Fists of Science, starring starring Nikola Tesla and Mark Twain. Okay, and taking on that is a great take, 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 <laughs> taking on uh, Thomas Edison and J. P. Morgan. Excellent, excellent graphic novel. So uh, it's it sounds I like rap definitely. rap battles of history. <laughs> <laughs> but I just kind of love that type, the Five Fists of Science. Absolutely. And I also like to give a shout out to this one's not as well known, uh, Boston Metaphysical Society, um, which is by a, 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 a writer in Los Angeles named Madeline Holly Rosing, and 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 her her uh, experience is kind of says a lot about where steampunk is. She's a uh, uh, she's she's an independent author. She. She conceived the comic book or the graphic novel as an independent venture, self-published venture, but she did it professionally. She's got some serious writing chops. She has an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA, 
And uh, nice. but she did the whole she she crowdfunded. There's a lot of crowdfunding in steampunk. Uh, she goes to all the comic cons, and now she's gotten picked up by a major distributor. So now you can finally buy her her comic books and graphic novels in comic book stores. So huge press to have for yeah. that. Yeah, and so uh, you, you see that a lot. Now she's been very successful at it. She got so expert at crowdfunding that she wrote a book for for how to crowdfund if you're a creator. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So she, she oh, all her novels or her graphic novels, she crowdfunds them. She raises the money. It's her full time job, and then she uh, she goes to you know, comic cons and science fiction conventions and steampunk conventions, and because she's from L.A. and she kind of knows that whole L.A. scene. She's got she's got that Hollywood pitch when when people go to her table at Comic Con she goes think X Files in the Victorian era and so and so I mean. she's got that one <laughs> sentence that kind of captures the essence and kind of gets people interested and um, and so I, I wanted to give her a shout out another great book which is sort of again if we, if we use the phrase before it's kind of steampunk adjacent is the amazing Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age. It's not. It's, it's not the late nineteenth century. It's not Victorian era. But what it is, is um, he says they're in a future where one of the dominant socio-economic groups, known in the book as Files, has deliberately embraced the values of the Victorian era and reinforces that choice by immersing themselves to the kind of absolute extent possible in a very Victorian aesthetic. It's. It's not exactly steampunk. It's kind of cyber steampunk. It's. it's it's a strange one to describe, but it is nonetheless it is. an excellent, excellent book. As you've got all, you've pretty got much everything Neil wrote, all the aesthetic, even the machines of steampunk, but they're all driven by nanotechnology, and you have a whole aspect of of um, virtual reality as well with body stages and stuff like that. It's a it's a fascinating book, and it's and some of the stuff Stevenson wrote this book you know, 20 something years ago. And some of the stuff that he, you know, he's written about has actually started coming into B. You know what I mean? Like we don't have roll up TV screens yet, but they're definitely in R and D right now. Right. hundred percent. You know, the flexible monitors and stuff like that. And that's how they read papers in this book. Newspapers. They still have the printed newspaper, but it's, but it's on a flexible computer type thing. And another one, Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Not exactly steampunk, because as we mentioned earlier, they're kind of from that era looking forwards rather than from this era looking back. But, I mean, as much like the works of H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, etc., they're very much the perspective of the time they were written, but with a very steampunk aesthetic. So, like, would you would you include them in the genre, or do you think, as we mentioned before with H.G. Wells, they're kind of... Most most people would not. Most most people who are really into steampunk would not necessarily call them steampunk. We'll call them more precursors or inspirations, and definitely of, of interest. Um, uh, you know, something involving Frankenstein or H.G. Wells or Jules Verne is definitely going to catch the interest of steampunk fans. Most steampunk fans have probably read those books. But also, you know, Sherlock Holmes. There's a lot of crossover between mm-hmm. uh, steampunk and Sherlock there Holmes, is. even though it wasn't had no science fiction elements at all. Um, there have been steampunk versions of Sherlock Holmes or steampunk retellings of Sherlock Holmes. But but because they're written in their era, 
most people would not consider that to be to be steampunk. One of my uh, one of my favorite graphic novels ever is uh, Neil Gaiman. It's it, it, he wrote a book, but it was then converted into a graphic novel by another person whose name I'm blanking on because I'm the worst. But it's called it's called A Study in Emeralds. It's the perfect trifecta of Sherlock Holmes, steampunk, and Lovecraft. And it's it's one of those sit books that you just you you have to read it to really understand just how completely insane it is. But it is well, that's, it's so that's, so good. It's gaming anyway. He's just like Fair point. just read it. <laughs> yeah. well, Lovecraft Fair is point. another one is kind of like steampunk adjacent. Uh, oh yeah, I, I would say. Yeah, Lovecraft was bonkers, man. Yeah, absolute dumpster fire of a person, yeah. but one of the greatest creative oh, minds yeah. of his era. Like I had no idea till recently, you know, his politics. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now uh, I, that reminds me. I one I, I want to give it a shout out to a TV series that's very steampunk adjacent, very close to steampunk. Not technically steampunk, but but steampunk fans sure love it. The Murdoch Mysteries, which is from Canada, it's a, it's a mystery series set in. Victorian era Toronto, but the 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 hero is a detective who's very science minded, and he's always inventing crime solving gadgets really before their time. And there are a lot of historical figures that that you know that appear in the show. The first episode has Nikola Tesla, and it involves the uh, the, the current wars between Nikola Tesla and, and Thomas Edison. And I don't want it. I'll, I won't give away a spoiler, but uh, there's a there's a really key technology in crime fighting that the, the detective kind of invents with the help of Nikola Tesla in that first episode. Um, but it, but H.P. Lovecraft actually does an appearance, a young H.P. Lovecraft, and and they handle the pro- he comes across as kind of a really kind of creepy, you know, not all right character, but it is a hilarious episode. They kind of do a um, an early 20th century take on goth. <laughs> and it's uh, it's one of the later episodes. Awesome. It's on Hulu. You can see it on Hulu, and it's also on Acorn TV. I highly recommend it. Murdoch Mysteries. I would totally see Lovecraft as a creepy incel guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, that that's that's one of my favorite shows, and I know a lot. You know, even, there's no pure science fiction in it. It is all based on plausible technology, but they 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 go right up to the border, right right up to the the border, and uh, uh, and and it's a lot of fun. So, another show I would recommend. I have a distinct suspicion that uh, the Nevers may follow a very similar path to that. It won't they won't go too futuristic, but I can see Pennant inventing things that for nowadays would be considered perfectly normal, but in that era are like, what is she doing? We've mentioned a few times now, and you've you kind of hinted towards it. Tell us just exactly how much you loved the 1965 to 1969 steampunk masterpiece, The Wild Wild West. Oh, man. Um, well, it, it was just the whole idea of doing, you know, kind of, kind of taking the technology of that time and and making it futuristic. And, and the, the gadgets and the, the characters. Um, you know, I think that what one of the things that makes steampunk appealing to people, I think one of the things that made Wild Wild West appealing to people, it's a mashup. 
and, 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 and there's something about mashups, taking two things that don't really have anything to do with each other and putting them together in a way that works. And, and so the Wild Wild West was basically conceived as it was a Wild West version of James Bond. That was the original concept. And then it got a little more science fiction-ish as it went on. But that was you know, the original concept was take, take James Bond and put him in the post-Civil War United States. And, and give him a train and, and give him these gadgets and everything. Um, so, uh, which raises another interesting point about steampunk th- that, so st- Wild Wild West was steampunk before there was steampunk. Another example that people often point to is the 1954 Disney adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Very influential on, ste- on the steampunk aesthetic, even more so than the original Jules Verne novel but um one thing i have found and I've, it's kind of funny i've run into artists like this where people will do steampunk without knowing they're doing steampunk and there was a uh, i ran into an artist at maker fair this guy in nevada who made this giant mechanical squid and it was, it was amazing he fabricated it himself it was about 10 feet long and it was all cast metal and, and it had these tentacles and there were these little cranks on the fence. It was surrounded by a fence. And there were these cranks and you would turn the cranks and it would make the tentacles move. It was the most steampunk thing you could ever see. And so he was telling me this. Now, at that point, he kind of knew that it was steampunk. But he told me he was building this thing. And his father goes up to him and he says, that's steampunk. And, and the artist, his name is Barry Crawford, he goes, what's steampunk? He's making this thing. And it's, it's, he's he's going, what is steampunk? And and his dad says, that's steampunk. What you're doing there is steampunk. It doesn't get any more steampunk than a mechanical yeah, or octopus. Squid. It was a squid. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but that idea of, it, it's, you know, you, you kind of take that, that 19th century aesthetic and you kind of fuse it with something else and, or kind of look at it from a contemporary perspective. It's very easy to do steampunk without realizing that you're doing steampunk. And the same with it. Actually, there was a mechanical octopus, and this thing was spectacular. It was called El Popo Mechanico. And if you Google El Popo Mechanico, <laughs> it was a it was a big hit at Burning Man, and it was at Maker Fair. It's this gigantic octopus that was made of scrap metal up in Northern California. Uh, it, was, it was maybe 20, 30 feet high. Oh, the, the, the tentacles kind of move. It would play this party music, and the tentacles would move with the party music. It had these eyes that would come out of its uh, of the of its head, and it spewed fire. So the the tentacles spewed fire. <laughs> of course, it, be, it, does. it beat and it, it beat to the music, and so and you can see videos of, and photos of this if you go on Google. And I and I, and I met the inventor. It was a guy named Dwayne Flatmo. I was talking to him at at Maker Fair, and I said. So that is like a totally steampunk thing you did. El Popo Mechanical is, I had never heard of steampunk. After I did it, people told me it was steampunk. And, and he goes, I, you know, but then again, it didn't have any steam. So I figured it's not steampunk. Um, <laughs> so that happens a lot. There's a lot of steampunk out there. People just don't know it's steampunk. And that's the wild, wild west. They, they were doing steampunk before they knew that it was steampunk. Funny you should mention kind of steampunk that doesn't know it's steampunk because the next TV show we wanted to bring up. It's actually an anime, and it's one of like the all-time most popular, most beloved series out there. And most people have no idea that it is just 
achingly steampunk. It's a series called Full Metal Alchemist. It's set in a kind of fictionalized version of Germany in sort of, um, like, it's not, it's never quite 100% sure what the date is, but not modern day. And the main character, Edward Elric, um, I won't go into details because spoilers, but he has a bit of an accident in the start yeah. of the first episode. <laughs> he screws up bad and he ends up losing an arm and a leg and he replaces them with these sort of giant mechanical, awesome, awesome arm that my brain is blanking. Uh, auto male. They're called like a lot of people in the world have replacement limbs that they're called auto male. And his best friend is a auto male mechanic and she makes him a new arm and a leg. And if you haven't seen it, anyone out there, I absolutely recommend check out Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, one of the most beloved series of all time. And it is just, I'm not, I'm not sure if they were deliberately trying to make it steampunk, but it's got the whole kind of 40s, 50s aesthetic, but with robots and steam and magic. And it's amazing. Yo, that, that's, that's just anime, you know. That's to anime treads dangerously close to steampunk. Oh, there's a lot. Of, there's actually a lot mm. of steampunk anime now. One of the great things, uh, HBO Max has that now. Has Full Metal Alchemist, and and so and Does also it? they have the uh, nice. Yep. Was it Studio Ghibli? The uh, the the this. Yeah, they have a Studio yeah, Ghibli yeah. channel. And so I've been <laughs> wow. catch, I, I had been reading about some of this stuff. Some of the Studio Ghibli movies are amazing and there's one um i think it was a um castle in the sky that's a classic steampunk yeah. movie um uh because they're now on hbo max you can finally see them and so i've been uh i've been slowly going through that catalog i'm i'm really happy they uh, decided Enjoy. to. Uh, you'd really love how if you haven't seen howl's moving castle yeah, that's, that's next really... on my list yeah. i'd say howl and uh nausicaa no, it's a cut. It's on punk. there. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a few more shows to round out the television shows. Penny Dreadful, which I have been meaning to watch forever because I love Eva Green. I didn't have Showtime, which it was on um, uh, originally. It has now migrated to other places, but I'm in the middle of like three other shows right now, so it's on hold. Um, so I don't. I I have a sense of uh, the Victorian style monsters being on this show. And that somehow Eva Green has a hand in inventing them. I'm not. Has seen anybody it. seen it? Yeah, it's it's. It, I mean, it's very. It's a very well produced show, uh, and a very well written show. Um, it's 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 one of those things that's not really steampunk, but steampunk fans like it. Uh, so you don't see the gears and the goggles and all the steampunk gadgetry. But it the basically the idea of Penny Dreadful is they took all these characters from uh you know 19th century literature and put them in one show and kind of reimagine kind of build a whole yeah. new storyline around these characters. So there's a Doctor Frankenstein and there's a Dracula and there's a um and they, and they make oh, there's a there's a, a Dorian Gray, um yeah, Dor, no, yeah, Dor, yeah Dorian Gray and then there are some characters just made up for the program. And it's three, it's three seasons. Um, each season is kind of a self-contained story, but then they kind of build on each other. Um, so it took me a little while to get into it. I had to, you know, I had to be a little bit patient with it, but it's very well done, very well produced. 
Uh, ver- like I said, very well written, really good cast, good acting. Um, so I would I would recommend it. And finally, we touched on um, his dark materials, both the movies and the series. Um, as Stephen said before, this version is, while well done, has gotten away from the roots of the steampunk steampunk book, which was much more set in that world, and even the movie that was set in that world, but had stripped out all the anima that was, you know, in philosophy that was in the book. If it's really well done. I'm not going to quibble too much about whether it's steampunk or not. You know, if it's if it's a well-told story, if, it, if the writing is good, the acting is good. You know, obviously you like to you like to see the gears and the gadgets and the airships and all that stuff. But if it's a well-told story, that's what really counts. So let's move on to the films. We talked about Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea being another one of those steampunk before it knew it was steampunk type things. I remember. Seeing that when I was a kid and then my parents, we lived in, we were stationed in San Francisco. I'm an army brat. So we were on the Presidio and my parents dragged us down to Disney World down close to LA. And there was a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride down there. And I don't remember much about it except that it scared the crap out of me because they stick you in the submarine and you have windows, had windows. It doesn't exist anymore, I don't think. But I remember coming out of there being like, oh, there's a giant squid trying to kill all of us. But but yeah, I don't, I haven't seen the movie since I was probably five or maybe eight. Yeah, but it, it, the one of the things about that movie that's been very influential was the design of the Nautilus. Uh, it, was, it was designed by a guy named Harper Goff, and that has had a big influence on steampunk design. And I was talking earlier about, about Maker Fair and Burning Man. One of the iconic projects uh, that you could see at Maker Fair some years was the Nautilus submarine art car. And someone actually built a th- nice. And he got commissioned. There was a, a wealthy fellow who commissioned this guy to build this 13-foot-long art car that looked like the Nautilus. It was a faithful reproduction of Nautilus at a smaller scale, and you could actually drive it around. So you drive it around the Burning Man. It drove around um, uh, Maker Fair. Really cool project. That is freaking. Do you awesome. find a lot of the the Maker stuff, the big ticket Maker stuff? Like, is uh, just out of curiosity, is steampunk kind of ingrained into the DNA of Burning Man? Certainly, years ago, maybe less so now, um, but. Uh, there, there's a book I would recommend if you really want to get into steampunk called The Steampunk Bible by Jeff Vandermeer. And he gets into a lot of the, the aesthetics of steampunk and the, and the connections to Burning Man and Maker Faire. Um, but there were just some iconic projects that are kind of seen as icons of steampunk that were first seen at Burning Man. So one of the one of the most prominent – now, I'm in the Bay Area. One of the benefits of living in the Bay Area is that um, – a lot of the artists who make these big scale projects for Burning Man are in the Bay Area. Uh, and, and they would often, they would take their projects to Burning Man and then they would show them at Maker Fair. Now, I've never been to Burning Man. Uh, but, so I would see these things at, at Maker Fair. But one of the outfits, it's a really interesting place, is called Obtanium Works. So they make their, they, they, they make, they have this whole mythology that they've built, but they make their, stuff from obtanium, which is their word for things that found objects, basically. So their big, big project that they're best known for is the Never Was Hall, which is a three-story Victorian house on wheels. It goes at three miles per hour. It is literally three stories tall. <laughs> and if you go if you go Google Never Was Hall, 
H A U L. You'll see videos of this thing. You'll see videos of it on the on the Playa Burning Man, or you know, I've seen it actually at their studio in Vallejo, California, which is not far from me. But they've made all kinds of these wild, wild um, uh, art cars. Um, so, so that's one outfit that makes these things. Now, the the Nautilus art car was made by a, an outfit called Five Ton Crane, and another one of their claims to fame is the Steampunk Treehouse. <laughs> Which was, it, oh, was wow. like a, it was a tree with a treehouse made of metal, and it got shown at Burning Man, and now it can be seen at a at a distillery brewery in Delaware, Dog Dogfish Head Brewery in Delaware. It's got this steampunk treehouse in front of their uh, in front of their uh, uh, operation in front of their facility, and they use it for company meetings, for brainstorming meetings. If they want to get ideas, they they go up and they sit in the treehouse and they brainstorm. Those are some of the really iconic Burning Man types of things. These are huge projects. They they go out and they get funding. You know, Burning Man funds them. Uh, they raise they raise uh, crowdsourcing funding, and they have big teams of people who spend you know months and months building these things. So uh, they're just really uh, it's not something that one person can do in their backyard. Although you'll you'll see some cool stuff like that too. But that's the really it is you just look and go wow that's just like eye popping. That's definitely a big part of the culture. Yeah, I've I've had several friends that go that I've never been. Um, I'm too much of a wuss to go camping on the desert for a week. But they have like these build weekends all year where they, you know, they have a tribe or whatever it is or a group. Um, and they build their big projects every weekend. And it takes almost all year. And then they haul it out to Black Rock and set it on fire half the time. <laughs> Yeah. Now, now, if you don't if you don't want to have to deal with um, uh, the desert, and if you're uh, if you happen to be in the Bay Area, there are a couple of uh, events that happen. We can kind of get a taste of that, and they're both in Vallejo. Vallejo is a very steampunk town. The the mayor of Vallejo, I don't believe he's the mayor. I don't think he's still the mayor, but the former mayor of Vallejo was really into steampunk. He would go to events in a steampunk with a ste- steampunk hat and the vest and everything. Nice. But there is a That's there's awesome. a, an event called the the uh, Tanium Cup Contractors Rally, where it's in July. Now it didn't happen this year, but uh, it's in July, and these people bring all these wild art cars and they do an obstacle course, uh, where they have to first they contend with flying monkeys and then killer robots, and then they have to go through Wonderland <laughs> and finally deal with ah. zombies. And so it's just this real fun free event. At this park in Vallejo, where everybody just kind of goes and they watch these wild art cars do this obstacle course, and they people dress up in Alice in Wonderland costumes and uh, oh, and that's awesome. costumes, a lot of fun. And then in the in December in Vallejo, they have the Mad Hatter Parade, where uh, it's 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 half like a regular parade where you've got the high school bands and all that stuff, but then the other half is this wild you know art cars and. Uh, Obtainium works like bring they haul out all their like their entire inventory of art cars and they have them go, go into parade. And uh, there was one um, another one of these Burning Man projects. Again, you can look it up on Google. Rhino Redemption, where this guy took a truck and he made it look like a big rhinoceros with the big with the big snout, the big nose, the the horn on the front, and the horn spews out uh, fire. And so everything has to spew out fire. Yeah, of course. It's like a Burning Man thing. And so, uh, so again, early December, 
not this year, future years, early December, July, if you're ever in the Bay Area, or it might even be worth making a trip to the Bay Area if you're not too far. It's one of the things I love about living around here is there's all this creativity like that. But back to the movies. So we talked about Wild West, the show. What was your feeling on Wild West, the movie? Because it was pretty, <laughs> but I thought it was a dog. Yeah, it's, uh, yep. it definitely flopped. I mean, it was worth, for me, it was worth watching because it was the wild, wild west, but no, it didn't work. And even the, even the people who made the movie now acknowledge that, it, you know, there were problems with it. Um, I think the director said one of the problems, if he, if he made the spider a little bit smaller, he thinks it might have been a better movie. I think it might have taken more than that, but, um, there's one movie that's not on your list there that I wanted to mention, uh, City of Lost Children. Which was a which was a French film, really, uh, really brilliant. The the imagery of that movie was just brilliant and very steampunk. Uh, and one of the notable things about that movie was it's one of the stars was Ron Perlman, who's obviously a well known actor here in the United States. Now it's a French language movie with uh, subtitles. He did not speak French. He does not speak French, so he had to do all his lines phonetically. And I think I heard him do. I I I actually got the 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 uh, the, the Blu-ray and uh, with the commentary. And I think he says it, it sounds. I th- I think he said it sounds like me doing French with a Serbian accent. <laughs> but very <laughs> it's a very common thing to say. Very imaginative. The visuals are stunning. I highly recommend that movie, City of Lost Children. Uh, Atlantis Lost Empire. I've never seen it. It was 2001, co-written by Joss. Um, Tom- I didn't actually know it was co-written by Joss. That's, that yeah. makes a lot of sense suddenly. I think he very, was a, very I think funny. He was a cleanup writer, but yeah. Now that's on Di- that's, that's think- a Disney animation, and now you can see it on Disney. Plus. It is, yeah, and, and Treasure Planet too. So I, no, I, yep. I had been, you know, I, I had never seen either Atlantis or Tre- nor Treasure Planet, but when Disney Plus came out, I subscribed and I got to watch them, and they were both, you know, good movies. Or I would recommend them both. We, yeah, we briefly covered uh, Golden Compass, the 2007 film version. Yeah, it, aesthetically, it was very pleasing, and the cast was amazing, but I thought it kind of missed the point with the script and i really really genuinely hated their changes to the end which i thought was utterly pointless yeah no i had not well oh, I, was, I had not read the book but i yeah. i got the sense from watching it that they just kind of compressed too much you know they just they, you could just tell that they left a lot of it out or they tried to do too much in two hours so it didn't it didn't really cohere well and the whole point of the books was Pil- Pullman's viewpoint on uh, organized religion, especially the Catholic Church. And that all got stripped out in order not to offend the movie going public. And and when you take a book like that, that's whole basis is, you know, the subterfuge in it is criticizing organized religion. It's not going to work. It's kind of hilarious when they made the TV series. It's like, great, now they can make season one without cutting anything out. And then made season one and added a bunch of season two in there. So they ended up dropping a few bits from season one, which I thought kind of defeated the point. Right. But the first season was still very, very strong. And then uh, Mortal Engines and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, we covered both of them. Uh, did you, do you have anything more to say on those subjects? Yeah, it was it was disappointing. We were so hopeful about that movie. And, and you, you kind of knew that they had taken out a lot of the steampunk elements. Because they had they had signaled that in some of the you know interviews about the production, you know, with the director, 
But uh, because of the pedigree, the people who are working on it, Peter Jackson, and you know, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be the steampunk Lord of the Rings. And, and uh, it was, some people liked it. I mean, I will say that there are some people in the steampunk community who liked it. There's some people in the steampunk community <laughs> that like anything that's got steampunk. There's always one, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, no, I, uh, a lot of people just didn't think it worked. And, and, uh, and they also, I mean, they, you know, they had, they had real high hopes that this would be the movie that would put steampunk on the map. And, and what ended up happening is there was one guy in the UK, a critic in the UK, and it was kind of inedible. This is why they should never make another steampunk movie. You know, steampunk movies are inevitably going to fail, pointing to the wild, wild west and mortal engines. And I guess my point is that sometimes movies are just bad just because they happen to be steampunk. Um, and and yeah. that's a very derivative way to you phrase have it. To, when you start talking about stuff like steampunk or um, any any sort of really highly specialized genre, you have to have somebody on the inside that a understands the aesthetic, the genre, and B, doesn't have a bunch of producers mucking around in their vision because mm. that's where it gets in trouble is, you know, you have this vision and that's why, you know, you see creative differences and people walk away from their babies like they did with, uh, with um, not Legend of Korra, but uh, Avatar, you know, mm. they, they were going to bring it live action to netflix and netflix started to try and change a bunch of stuff on them and i guess they didn't have the legal ability to say no so they walked yeah you know but i think the thing is there haven't been that many real pure steampunk movies so i think it's a percentage sure. deal you know a certain percentage of movies are just gonna be bad movies so um and i guess we just kind of you know look now one movie that i would say is is kind of quasi steampunk is uh, the prestige and that was really that yes. was really oh, good. Yeah, very much. David so, Bowie yeah. is Nikola Tesla. I mean, film. that's all you have to know to want to watch oh. that movie. David Bowie is <laughs> Nikola Tesla. Absolutely perfect casting. Yeah. That whole cast yeah. was bananas. Yeah, I think saying that Mortal Engines failed because it's steampunk is a huge misnomer because everyone I know, including myself, that has seen Mortal Engines, the only bits they liked were the steampunk exactly. bits. It was everything else about the film that exactly. failed. The lead actress was terrible. Uh. Hugo Weaving was just clearly sleeping through the whole. <laughs> and it's like people, people kind of have this idea of Peter Jackson being the guy that can come in and make these amazing genre films based purely on Lord of the Rings. But they forget that was a massive passion project that took like six years of development. You can't give him this book. Say, yeah, great. You got 18 months to crap out a film. Make yeah. it good. It's never going to work. Well, yeah, and it had no budget and they rushed it to yeah. market. Now, yeah. one, one thing I yeah. want to mention, just because we're talking about steampunk and you know, Peter Jackson is from New Zealand and and a lot of his movies are made in New Zealand. And I just think that no discussion of steampunk would be complete without mentioning the fact that New Zealand is bonkers about steampunk. New Zealand, they are, that's an island of like five million, uh, two islands of five million people, about the same population as the Bay Area. And they got steampunk going on all over the place. And so there is a town in New Zealand, in the South Island of New Zealand, called Oamaru which is arguably the world headquarters or the world capital of steampunk. Uh, they, they actually have a museum there called Steampunk HQ uh, with a train in front of it that, that does all these pyrotechnics, well, not pyrotechnics, but all these lighting effects and puts out smoke and stuff. Um, and they have a big steampunk festival there every year. And I know at least one guy, you know, a fa fairly well-known steampunk maker, 
who just visited Oamaru, and he was ready to call his wife and say, okay, we're moving from Virginia to Oamaru. He had it all played out. He was going to do his own business there. It's so... Um, and uh, there's one activity that's a very popular pastime at steampunk events called teapot racing that was actually invented in New Zealand, where people people take the, do these radio-controlled teapots and they race them around an obstacle course. And that was actually invented at a, uh, a steampunk festival in New Zealand. So I wanted to give a shout-out to all the folks there in New Zealand for kind of carrying the torch for steampunk because they're, uh, they're really into it there. I mean, we, we do have a couple of Kiwi listeners, so if you are listening from New Zealand <laughs> and you are a steampunk fan, it's the mecca. I'll tell you, a lot, a lot, wherever you are, there are a lot of people who have Oamaru on their bucket list. That and not uh, now, so do I. There's a city in France that was the birthplace of Jules Verne that has this kind of amazing uh, theme park with this gigantic mechanical elephant that you can kind of get on top and ride around and. <laughs> Um, that's another place. The two places that are on the uh, on the steampunk bucket list are uh, this town in France and uh, and Oamaru. Yeah, so we've briefly discussed books, TV shows, and films. But as we mentioned earlier, one area where steampunk is absolutely exploding is in the world of video games, being as they are kind of the almost the perfect blending of aesthetic and story. It'll it's a place where steampunk is kind of almost guaranteed to thrive. Uh, it's a few major sort of games. Uh, Bioshock Infinite is the one that usually springs to mind yeah, for a lot of yeah. people. And then uh, Machinarium, which is a sort of side-scrolling puzzle game. Very, very indie, I very, love very that good. Game. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that would be right up your street. Do you want to talk briefly about Machinarium? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a point-and-click, basically. That it, It's a side-scroller, but it's a mystery that's... Um, you have this little kooky robot that has to go around and figure out puzzles, right? It's very much um, like Mist, if anyone's ever played that. But it's it's highly stylized as a, a mechanical kind of steampunk-looking game. Everything's very retro-looking. Um, and it, it, in a lot of cases, the puzzles are putting little machines and contraptions together to make stuff work. Now you mention it, Mist and Riven were both also incredibly steampunk in their aesthetic, especially Riven. Like there was a lot of puzzles involving making steam machines work. I was so addicted to those games. Oh my! Now Lord. I will confess, I am not a gamer, but my but what the the way I know about all these video games is I do this column for I do this news column for uh, the Steampunk Explorer, and so I always hear about these steampunk games when I'm compiling information for the column. And I, I I kind of do roundups of the games and whatnot. So there's a lot of activity in in steampunk gaming, and and I do I do love really the visuals. Is, yeah. I mean they just they just go all out with the visuals of some of these things. If not the games themselves, at least the promotional art for the games. Um, so there's a lot of action there. The thing I like about Machinarium that you don't deal with in uh, Bioshock Infinite, you know, uh, Infinite Bioshock is very much a, a an action game. It's a it's a first person shooter. Um, Machinarium is, is what they, you know, the hardcore gamers would call a casual game and you can take your time and find out what you need to. There's no pressure. There's no murder. There's no weapons. You know what I mean? Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to mention about games, I should, cause they're in the latter, they're in the last days of their Kickstarter campaign and, and they're, 
they have a very ambitious goal that they're kind of short of meeting. So I hope they can make their goal. But there's going there's an effort to make a girl genius video game. There's oh, a, there's, nice. a, there's a game oh, developer really? in, in Norway that did a, a, a game called Tesla Grad. And they have uh, done a preliminary deal, apparently, to, to take Girl Genius into a video game. And it's on Kickstarter now. They, their goal was $200,000. And I think they're like two-thirds of the way there. They got about a week left to go. So uh, it's going to be down to the wire. But I really hope they uh, make that goal and uh, get that game going. They're, they're planning to have it out toward the end yeah. of 2022. Fingers yeah. crossed for that. And um, I know Matt Woods fly to England to kick my ass if we let the gaming section go without mentioning Frostpunk, which, believe it or not, is a steampunk yeah. game. It's a city-building survival game developed and published by 11-Bit Studios. The game is set in an alternate 1886 where eruptions of Krakatoa and Mount Tambora, the dimming of the sun and other unknown factors have caused a worldwide volcanic winter. This in turn is at the widespread crop failure and the death of millions players take on the role of a leader and they must build and maintain a city during a volcanic winter managing resources making choices on survival and exploring the area around their city to you know try and write their own stories and find different challenges to undertake in the world i've got to say i am absolutely terrible at survival games i can barely survive in real life so i mean yeah it's not really something i've tried to play but i did briefly flick past it on steam and aesthetically it does look absolutely stunning oh, is this so, a game is this a game matt plays all the time yep he has good taste in the aesthetics of games so i'm mm. sure it'll it's really beautiful all right. Uh, do you have any other games, Stephen, that you know about? Like, do you guys play card games or? I think. Oh, yeah. Yes, there are. There are. There are steampunk board games, and there are steampunk card. I believe there are steampunk versions or add-ons for Magic: The Gathering. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but again, I am I am not the person to talk to about games. I just I just know about them from uh, from uh, whether it's video or tabletop. There's a lot of gaming activity in steampunk and a lot of gaming fans, but I, I'm not the authority on that at all. I think we'll have to spin that into another podcast. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk musicians, and I'm going to go Ooh. be right up front here. I've never heard of any of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of a few. Yeah, well, the, the best. Um, so, so talk us talk us through these musicians, Stephen. Okay. Well, the, the the best known steampunk band is probably Abney Park. And they've been around for a long time. And also another, you know, another well-known band is Steam Powered Giraffe. And there's one out of Florida Ooh. called The Cog is Dead. Ooh. Is there a sound? Do they have a specific sound? Not really. Uh, or is it more of how they look? I mean, how does that it, work? It, it, it's different for different bands. There's not really a steampunk sound. It's not like goth or, or punk rock. Um Basically, a steampunk band is a band that plays at steampunk events. That's the simplest <laughs> definition. Um, but uh, but but it, it's it's a little more complicated than that. A lot of them have um, they'll have some element of um, kind of vintage part, vintage sounds as part of their sound, you know, kind of old time sounds. Part of it will be the look, the style, the way they dress on stage. Uh, some of them have. Uh, uh, steampunk lyrics. I was going to ask, um, is it the so subject the, matter yeah. that's that's you know retro or Victorian? Yeah, yeah, and and but it's it, everyone does it differently. So you, you go to a you go to a, a concert at a steampunk uh, event, and they're actually 
you know, steampunk events that are almost all music. That's pretty much all they are. Um, but you'll get a you'll get a variety of sounds. You get folky stuff. You'll get some hard rock. You'll get some. Uh, there's there's a sound called electro swing, that's kind of popular. Where it's kind of like a uh, kind of like twenty swing music, but done like real electronic. So and then there's this fascinating and, and really fun kind of a uh, steampunk related genre called chap hop, which is sort of a steampunk take on hip hop. That's amazing. Yeah, I spent all of yesterday listening to chap hop, and it's amazing. Yeah, the two. The, the two most prominent you know, purveyors of chap hop, both in the UK, Professor Elemental and Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. And, uh, and I, 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 they're, it's hard to describe. You just, they have tons of videos on YouTube. They're just a lot of fun. They're just, they're just So this is hovering and, uh, dangerously close to another genre that my partner's into called Nerdcore, which is... <laughs> Which okay. is hip hop for nerds, which they rap about video games and and like steampunk yeah. is flying right into that you know area. So yeah. that, that that overlap of adjacency, I think I've actually heard of Professor Elemental. So yeah, yeah, uh, they, they're they're fairly a big they're fairly big deal in in the UK at least in the indie music circuit and a few others. I just want to give shout outs to Frenchie and the Punk. Which is a duo that are very popular at steampunk events, and they've been doing a lot of virtual events. There's one out of Paris called Victor Sierra, which is kind of a steampunk diesel punk, and they kind of have a, a little bit of a new wave heavy metal sound. But you know, it's for them, it's the it's the lyrics and and the the, the dressing and the staging, the the costuming. There's a a, a solo performer named Unwoman, uh, who plays a cello and does these amazing things with loops and. Uh, really talented composer and singer. Um, there's actually a band out of Japan called, I think it's Fate Gear, which is an all-female Japanese heavy metal band. Sounds um, right out of my street. And, and, and they're the only the only steampunk thing that they do is is the is the getups. They they dress up in steampunk outfits and do this really fast like thrash metal. Nice. Um, it's like baby metal. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's actually quite. I've got a listing of, of steampunk bands on on my website, and there there are quite a few of them. There there are steampunk events, like I said, all around the world, um, particularly in the UK, in the United States, and Canada. And virtually every one of them is going to have a, like a concert or a headline performer, or or something like that. It's definitely a big part of the genre. But like I said, it's not a sound. It's just more part of the culture. Some of these folks, it's their full time job you know it's not like they're just doing it as a side gig so um yeah it's a fun it's a real fun part of it the hip-hop is just go look up some some of the hip-hop oh i'm definitely gonna look up up, Uh, (laughs) madam misfit is a relatively new one and she's a female chap-hop artist which kind of kind of you know chap-hop you know but uh she 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 does chap-hop electro swing (laughs) professor (laughs) elemental is in some of her uh some of her bits so she's a relatively uh new performer but her stuff is also a lot of fun professor elemental has a track called fighting trousers which <laughs> yeah is just superb and um yeah, they, they just do, yeah they do great videos yeah very much so like a lot of work is put into those videos and uh, steam power giraffe have this absolutely bonkers track it's eight minutes long it's called captain albert alexander and it's just the story of this guy who like he was always obsessed with the ocean and it's kind of his life story told over 8 minutes 
but uh, uh, there's also, I should mention, uh, Alice Strange, who used to be known as Alice's Night Circus, is kind of an up-and-coming sort of a solo performer out of the UK. And she does a lot of steampunk events in the UK. And, and again, a lot of really good videos. She's got a couple albums out now, so she's worth checking out. So I just messaged my partner. I said, today I learned about Chap Hop. He said, oh my God, I've been trying to get you to listen to Professor Elemental for a decade, you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you watch, if you watch some of Professor Elemental's uh, videos, even when he's not doing music, he's a very talented comedian. He's got, you know, some people just kind of natural comedy talent. And, and Mr. B as well. Uh, it's just brilliant stuff. All right, so so and let's wrap this up before we get a listener letters. What what would what do you hope to get out to people listening to this show, Stephen? What do you want? What do you? We've talked about what you think you want to see from the Nevers, but what are like representing your community? Pressure, pressure. Like what? What are your hopes? And what do you want people to understand about the the genre? Well, I would say that you to really get steampunk, it really helps to go to an event, and some of them are expensive. Uh, some of the conventions can be expensive, but they're also low, like relatively low cost events. There are a couple of big free festivals, one in uh, Missouri, in Hannibal, Missouri, and one in Waltham, Massachusetts. If you really want to get a sense of steampunk, go to a steampunk event because um, they're just a blast. That's where you really kind of get a sense of like what it's all about. Is is uh, and, and you know you can go on a website like the Steampunk Explorer and there are other steampunk websites. I'm certainly not the only one, um, but uh, you can maybe get a little bit of a taste of what the scene is like by looking at some of the articles, looking at some of the reports from, from steampunk events. Uh, you can find them on, uh, you know, uh, on Flickr. You'll find If you look up steampunk on Flickr, you'll find a lot of photos, like all the wild costumes and, and uh, all the chicanery. So um, I think that's the big thing. And certainly we're all excited about the Nevers and looking forward to it and, and hoping it's a success. And so uh, definitely we're look, looking forward to that. But that, I think my key takeaway is if you really want to get steampunk, go to an event. Awesome. Okay, we are now moving on. We've got a few cool letters here to answer. This one doesn't appear to have a name. It just says, hello from Pune, India. So if you are the person that wrote, please uh, Hi, Pune. let us know who you are. <laughs> uh, I want to first wish you a happy anniversary. I know that I'm several months late, but it's a milestone. Also, I enjoyed your episode on Victorian England. It was very thorough, and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Well, thank you very much for the best wishes on the anniversary. Late is better than never, so it's always good to hear from our devoted fans. And I'm glad you enjoyed the Victorian episode. It was an absolute blast to record, so I'm glad it was as fun to listen to. But now... On to my question. I've been following the development of the Nevers, but I don't recall anyone suggesting that steampunk would be part of the show. I'm wondering why you think it will be. I thought the Nevers was going to be purely Victoriana, but apparently not. Thanks. Here's the thing. We're sort of pushing for the Nevers being steampunk, because we hope if we say it enough, they'll listen. There's been a few hints, but we... We do have clues. The car is a clue. Yeah. The car is a clue. Edmund Haig's lab is a clue. And we've heard from fell sources that there may be more than that. We've, we've heard a, uh, one of the writers drop the word steampunk. We, we don't know how much it's going to be steampunk. We don't know if it's going to be just Edmund's, just Penance, or if it's going to be a wider reaching aesthetic. We can't be sure. But, I mean, personally for myself, I keep mentioning it because I hope if I do it enough... <laughs> 
Joshua Lesson and just give me Steampunk Max. Because I, I need a world where I see an episode written by Joss where two people in giant Steampunk Max fight each other. <laughs> I need it. Yeah, well, if somebody asks, like, why is it going to be Steampunk and not Victoriana? This clearly someone who has a really specific idea of what steampunk is. Yep, yeah. Which is which is common. But um if you have you know, I have a more expansive view of it and you know, if it's uh, if it's nineteenth century science fiction, it's close enough for me. If it, <laughs> if there's not a gear if there's not a gear or a goggle to be seen, that's okay. All right. I was really excited to hear that you were doing an episode on steampunk. Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, baby! I'm a hardcore steampunk enthusiast myself. I've even traveled out of the country to attend steampunk festivals like Stephen was talking about. Uh, since we don't have them here where I live, how do you hope they use steampunk in the Nevers? Lucas from the Land Down Under. Uh, Lucas. Okay, so I'm a, a, a costume uh, drama enthusiast. Um, uh I hope it's not a total takeover of the Victoriana aesthetic. Um, at the same time, I think it will... I love the way well-done steampunk looks when it's executed really well. It's such a brilliant kind of um, retro um, sci-fi look. Um, so I hope it doesn't pervade everything, but I hope it's enough to give the show some wonder, some sense of futuristic um, capabilities. Um, and I know Tyg's going to completely disagree with me, but go ahead, Tyg. What are your hopes? No, not at all, not at all. I think in the same way that uh, Firefly was this great mix of kind of right. the cowboy feel, the futuristic feel, the American feel, the Chinese feel, it was this real kind of melting pot, this melange of about four or five different ideas i'd really love him to do something similar but bring uh, keep the sort of the, the pure in heavy air quotes victoriana I'm, I'm all for historical accuracy i'm all for kind of real world references but then if you kind of you know layer on like icing on a cake if you add on a little bit of you know some, some mechs some cars elevators bubbly things cogs I mean, if anyone's going to be able to walk that line, it's Joss. So, I mean, and then, you know, wrap the whole thing up in a big super-powered ribbon. It's, it's just my perfect show. <laughs> he's being more reasonable now. He's he's told me that he's all for it to be 100%, just robots walking around smashing each other to pieces. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the dream. But, I mean, I know that, I know unless Joss was literally writing it for me, that would never happen. I'm, I'm, I would quite like the sort of... Heavy steampunk notes, but it doesn't need to be the whole theme of the show. Okay. Oh, this is a good question coming from Dermot in a place that isn't. Maybe maybe Dermot's from Pune. No, maybe not. Okay. Um, he has asked, how come steampunk was never a real thing? To which I would reply, because we don't deserve it. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? What does that mean, a real thing? I guess I'm not uh, getting I, the question. I think he's asking why uh, steampunk wasn't an era, like a historical era, even though it, uh, the yeah. roots of it are in a historical era. I mean, steampunk was described as the greatest era that never happens. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just wondering well, why did it never happen? I considering, think... considering some of the things that happen in steampunk stories, that might be a good thing. 
That is an excellent point. But I mean, I think really we would have to say the Industrial Revolution. The reason we never got real kind of steampunk is because technology advanced beyond the point where we needed to have steampunk. But I mean, personally, I'm still sticking with my answer. That's the dichotomy of steampunk, because the two things in normal societal progression couldn't exist at the same time. Hmm. I mean, you could stick to the Victoriana rules of carriages and casts and women in corsets, but with the Industrial Revolution, that tears that fabric apart. I mean, as a, as a functional way of society, you know, things have to move on. So, I mean, the, the sci-fi writers at the time created the, the underpinnings for steampunk, if you will, but as Stephen says, steampunk's a contemporary look back on something that never existed. Uh, final letter. Hey guys, can you explain the difference between steampunk and cyberpunk? Which and which do you prefer? Also, do you think they're going to get the rest of the episodes of the Never's film this year before another quarantine period is put in place? Thanks, Jamie. You know, I hope so. They're filming right mm-hmm. now. Let's hope they they get it get it done before the second wave hits. Steampunk and cyberpunk. Just because I have more experience with cyberpunk, I'm more of a cyberpunk person. But I, I haven't read a lot of steampunk, so or or watched a lot of steampunk that's worked. And we've talked through that on this show. So you know, clearly, cyberpunk has been easier to adapt into. Um, in some cases, you know, we, we're not going to talk about Ghost in the Shell, the movie, the new movie. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. You've got the hyper-futuristic, and then you've got the retro-futuristic. So, I mean, I don't even know if there's a preference to be made. I'll say one difference, and I'm, I'm a word guy, I'm a writer, and so you know, this is something that, that occurs to me, is that cyberpunk is actually a good label. It's a fairly descriptive label of the literature. Because you've got the cyber, yeah. you've got the high-tech, and you've got the punk. You got the outcasts and the outlaws. And steampunk was a sort of an off-the-cuff, well, cyberpunk's big now. Victorian era had a lot of steam, so let's call it steampunk. And he wasn't even thinking that it would become a long-term label. But it's not necessarily all that descriptive of, of either the aesthetic or the genre. It, it, it kind of points around it or points at it or you know gets around it a bit, but it's not all that descriptive. And so that's one just from a, a, an etymological standpoint, that's that's one difference that I see. And then there's all kinds of other punks. There's diesel yeah. punk, ray punk, atom punk, silk punk, which is like Asian steampunk. And I just heard of a new one called archaeo punk, hmm? which is like ancient, civiliz- ancient civilizations archaeo punk. Nice. Uh, Interesting. So, um, yeah. Um, have you ever thought collectively about renaming it? Like what if you had the chance to rename the genre and the aesthetic, what you would call it? Or is it just too far gone now to put a label on it? Yeah, well, like I said, there's no council of steampunk elders that could kind of, <laughs> you know, it's not like the company. Um, now, there's a term, you know, there are related terms. Um, so the, the girl genius people, the people who created girl genius, they don't call their work steampunk. They call it gas lamp fantasy. Because they they didn't really like the term steampunk, so they came up with their own, you know, with 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 another term. It's a, it's a it's a very catchy term. That's the thing, and um, I like it as a, as an editor, quite frankly, because if I'm I'm looking for like steampunk news, if I put out a call, I do like a Google alert for steampunk. I'm not going to find a lot of stuff that's not steampunk. It's a very precise term in that 
in that respect. Um, Not so much for gaslap gaslap fantasy, huh? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Google that, so, you get one thing. Yeah. So, um, uh, but it, it's it's kind of stuck at this point. It's a cool sounding name that doesn't really necessarily describe it very well, but I guess we're gonna live with it. Ty, cyber or steampunk? Oh, I mean, they, they kind of they scratch different itches, so it's really hard to pick one in particular. Right. But um, I think I've read more cyberpunk, but watched more steampunk. So I say I'd prefer cyberpunk in books and steampunk in like games and stuff. Like Fallout is one of my all-time favorite games. Right. That's a that's a real kind of steampunk class. Although it's atom punk probably as well. We have we have talked in and around upside down of steampunk, and we could probably go for another three or four hours, like just knowing that there's a three hundred page dissertation out there on steampunk, just you know, undefining steampunk, just un- just uh, what is steampunk? It's three hundred pages, so. We want to thank Stephen for joining us. Please share with us your website and your social media connections, Stephen. So it's steampunk-explorer.com. And if you go to the website, the, the, the social media links are there. They're pretty easy. Just remember steampunk-explorer.com. It's a really well-designed site, too. I like how, I like how, you've, how you've dressed it up. Thank you. Plug the podcast, so plugity plug. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, and now Amazon, um, and Ooh. click to subscribe. For more Nevers-related content, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at HBO The Nevers. Our website is hbothenevers.com. If you have comments or questions or letters to be read on air, please uh, email us at theneverspodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in supporting us on our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash the Nevers podcast. I was say, uh, Steampunk Explorer is an absolutely killer website title. It is. Thank you. You, re- you really nailed it with that one. It's a great, great name. Did you code it yourself? Yes. Is that all CSS making that happen? Uh, Drupal. I built it in Drupal. Uh, there's a oh, lot of nice. CSS uh, that, that gives it the look. You know, Drupal is the structure. The architecture is built in Drupal. And then the uh, the look of it is uh, CSS. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming along and keeping us entertained. And yes, thank Heather, you, thank you for coming along and putting up with my nonsense. If you want to, you know, where, where, where can we track you down, if we so choose, on social media? If you want to communicate with me, I am HMB at TMP on Twitter. And I have been Tig, and if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Tig at TNP. It's T-A-H-E-G-A-T-T-N-P. So, until next time, this has been The Nevers Podcast. Okay, I'm stopping the official recording at just shy of two hours. I kind of wish we'd wrapped it on to a little bit longer so we could get that neat two hours. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, researched, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy. 
Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. They're coming. Are you ready? Do you want to transition, Tyke? Uh, yeah, I think that's... Okay. I didn't know if you had anything else to ask, so I was just going to wait for a second. Uh, no, sorry, I'm good. I'm good. All right, perfect. Crack on. It's how the butter gets made behind the scenes.